0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you say something like it's illegal to teach about critical race theory, what are you going to do? You might be the kind of person who feels like taking it on and really carving out the thing that you think is critical race theory, not teaching it. But you might also be a person who just says, uh, oh, not going to even bother to teach about race at all. And that is something that I'm very concerned about, especially with the environment that we're In even in the absence of laws banning things, we have people self-censoring, we have teachers self-censoring and teachers saying, I used to teach this topic, which is about race or sex or about feminism or about, you know, racism or whatever. And now I just don't feel like doing it anymore because it just opens me up to risk, risk of being accused, either institutionally or just informally accused. And that's the chilling effect. And now the good fight. With Yasha Monk.
1: Since the very start of his presidential campaign, Joe Biden has promised to help democracy vanquish the forces of populism, of autocracy, of fascism. He has said that this struggle is not only in the past, but that it continues in the present. And that helping to revive the spirit of democracy, would be one of the core tasks of his presidency. This is one of the reasons why he has convened the Summit for Democracy at the White House for the past couple of days. Now, it's less than a year into the administration. Biden faces many obstacles to success. But in the wake of the summit, it is nevertheless a good time to ask, To what extent he is succeeding in delivering on that promise? Well, when I look at the first year, it is obviously a huge boon for democracy to have Joe Biden rather than Donald Trump in the White House. It is obviously a huge relief for the world to know that America is clearly on the side of Democrats, not on the side of autocrats, again, but... I'm also quite disappointed with how much the administration has actually done to help democracy survive the challenge that Biden laid out so eloquently over the next years. The first bucket is that the White House has not yet done all that much to actually rein in the pernicious power that autocrats have around the world. Russia is continuing its extreme provocation in Ukraine, The status of Taiwan is more acutely contested than it has been for a long time. And in Afghanistan, the autocratic Taliban are ruling throughout the country again. A lot of people I think are looking at the United States at the moment and saying, thank God America's good face is back, but inspired by events like those in Afghanistan, they also worry, is America's good face good enough? Can we rely on the United States as a partner? The second area is one that is particularly close to my heart, that of stopping democracies from backsliding, of finding ways to incentivize authoritarian populists not to concentrate power in their own hands. There too, there's been a real rhetorical change from the White House, but not all that much action. And sadly, the Summit for Democracies has been a case study of that. A summit that invited about 110 countries, including many rated partly or not free by Freedom House. One which did not invite Hungary or Turkey, but that did invite India and Brazil and the Philippines and many other countries ruled by authoritarian populists. And while parts of the summit inspiring. And while, yes, there was some sensible promises made both by the United States and by other countries, on the whole, it had the feel of a campaign promise that needed to be fulfilled without too much embarrassment. It does not feel at this stage that something very meaningful and concrete is going to come out of it. Finally, Biden had promised to renew the spirit of democracy in the United States and around the world. Now, that promise was probably one that he was never going to be able to keep. And the extent to which America is failing to inspire the world at the moment is for thought of Donald Trump and his acolytes, not of Joe Biden. And yet, we must face just to what extent that is now the case, to what extent January 6th, to what extent the Big lie about the supposed big steal. to what extent Republican attempts to undermine the integrity of the election in 2024, are making America look like a horror story, not an inspiring example for democracies around the world. So what should Biden, what should the United States do in the coming years to fight for democracy? Well, I do think that a sensible agenda of democracy protection could have a real impact, but it would have to go beyond business as usual. It would have to involve the United States saying that they're going to be closer partners with countries that are democratic. But countries which are backsliding from democracy will not enjoy the same level of cooperation with and support from the United States. They would have to put real political capital into refounding institutions like NATO, which are becoming very difficult to sustain in part because of a presence of anti-democratic leaders in the midst. They would have to have a real strategy and a real vision. Now, doing all of this is going to be very difficult. It's going to have real drawbacks. It might not succeed. But if Joe Biden has decided that doing anything substantial to rescue democracy, to show up the fate of his political system around the world, is simply too much work, then he should at least come out and say so. If making a real difference in a contest between democracy and liberalism on the one side, and as he quoted fascism and autocracy on the other side, is not worth a cost, Biden should be upfront about that. My guest today is Jeannie Suk-Gerson. Jeannie is the John H. Watson, Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, as well as a contributing writer at The New Yorker. Jeannie has written about criminal law, due process, constitutional law, and we had a really wide-ranging discussion about the role that the law can play in society and in advancing society, about the way in which the law should be taught at universities, about some of the debates roiling the country on free speech, on due process, on Title IX, and about some of the controversial laws that have recently been pushed by Republican legislatures, including laws trying to ban so-called critical race theory, as well as the Texas law on abortion that tries to deputize average citizens in the course of enforcing a new ban on abortion. Jeannie Sukerson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I've been admiring your writing for a long time, but I recently saw you speak a little bit about the role of the Socratic method in law schools. There's a debate about this at the moment, and you're a defender of the importance of it. What is the Socratic method in law schools, and why, from your personal experience, do you feel that it's actually an important thing to preserve?
0: So I will first say that Socratic method is a method of teaching that's very common in law schools. And it came about in a kind of contingent way, but I don't actually buy into the idea that it's specifically a law school method that is specifically suited to teaching law. I actually think that it has a much broader appeal and a purpose that could be useful for teaching any subject. But essentially the Socratic method came about in the 19th century Mainly at Harvard Law School, because it was seen as a way to engage students in actual thinking in real time, instead of the experience of sitting, you know, kind of in an anesthetized kind of way where you sit in a lecture hall and you listen to the person at the head of the room just kind of go on and on and share their expertise. And the idea was that teaching should be about more than listening or just being lulled into a sense that you're learning, it should actually be active, it should be active learning in the sense that you should be engaging with the ideas in real time. And so the Socratic method was a way to call on students individually and then have them go through the analysis through questioning and then follow up questioning by the teacher instead of having the teacher just kind of impart their wisdom Upon the students. And so that's really the basic idea. And when it first was introduced, the students were very resistant to it because they just thought like, what do I know? I'm here to learn from the teacher. The teacher is the one who has the information and the expertise. And so how in the world should I be speaking in front of everybody and being questioned about something that I don't really know about? But that I think is the point that the process of learning is not just hearing what others have to say, but also, you know, engaging by talking about it. And so that's the idea. And for me, when I came to law school in 1999 as a 1L at Harvard, I still was extremely, let's just say, shy and diffident. I had grown up in a household that really did not prize speaking out loud. And if you had thoughts as a child and tried to express them, let's say, like, while the adults were talking about something, you know, I remember distinctly that I would be punished for speaking my mind in a way that would be, in some way, you know, disagreeing with what the adults were saying. So I think that my background, my family background, let's say, is in and in per- culturally inflected. Even though I'm sure not every person who grows up in an Asian household experienced this, but certainly for me at that time in an Asian household, in a Korean household, it wasn't the kind of household where you would engage in like a back and forth exchange of ideas. That's not what was prized. What was prized was book learning. You would learn, you would read, you would listen, you know, that kind of thing.
1: It's interesting. This sort of resonates with me. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish family where being loud and argumentative was probably prized, but I also grew up in Germany in an educational system that was reasonably differential towards teachers. Even for a lot of my teachers who sort of came from a 1968 student generation and thought of themselves as anti-authoritarian in certain ways, certainly you were not encouraged to challenge your teachers in any way or to disagree with them. And I remember when I came to Cambridge as an undergrad in supervisions or tutorials, as they'd be called in some universities, being asked, well, what do you think? You know, Do you agree with me? And I sort of thought, well, I don't know, you've learned about this for such a long time. And I've just read about this for a week. You know, what do I have to say about this? But I found this to be incredibly liberating, and anti-hierarchical. I found this to be empowering as a student that a professor would encourage me to express my own views and to have my own thoughts rather than just to defer. And I take it that that's sort of how you experienced it. But my understanding is, but now some of the criticisms against this method is that it's somehow being cast as hierarchical or as putting down students.
0: Well. I think that, first of all, the idea that we're not going to have hierarchy in a classroom where you know there's a professor and then there are students, the idea that that's not inherently a hierarchical situation, that's absurd. There is going to be a hierarchy, and that is partly why students are there to learn from the teacher. That doesn't go away because of the method of teaching. There isn't strict, complete equality in every aspect when you have a situation where the teacher is there. And you are there to learn from the teacher. At the same time, I completely agree with you. And that was my experience as well, that using a method other than just plain lecturing, where students are expected to say how they see the text that's being analyzed, that they're expected to engage with the text, they're expected to engage with each other and with the teacher, and even to be asked, like, what do you think of this? That is less hierarchical. Than the situation where you listen and you take notes diligently while the teacher just speaks to you. And so, yes, I did find it empowering. And for me, it was like the key moment of getting past this other way that I had experienced in my household. And it's not to say that it's better or that it is inherently superior. I don't think that it's like, you know, you grew up in several cultures at once, I did as well. And I think that it's about switching gears and about learning different modes. But for me, I do think that the process of learning is very much enhanced by having students expected to contribute to class discussion, and not only on a volunteer basis, because it would be wonderful if everyone would just volunteer, and then we would have a discussion where all voices were heard. But that doesn't happen. As a teacher, I know that if you just say, volunteer discussion, what that means is the same five people will be speaking again and again and again. And there will be people who never raise their hands or very infrequently do that. And I don't think that it is sufficient to leave it up to a volunteer discussion. So the Socratic method combines the sort of calling on students and especially students who wouldn't necessarily be so inclined to raise their hands. And I know the people who are inclined to raise their hands are ones who grew up Perhaps in a household like yours, where it was prized to be argumentative, and certainly in my household with my children, I don't think they're going to have any problem being volunteers in this discussion. But there are many students who arrive on campus and for whatever reason, don't really feel like doing that. And I do think that all of them ought to be treated with equality in the sense of the voices should be equally available for each other. For learning. And over the years of teaching, so many students have told me just how important it was to them to have that experience of being expected to speak, not just that it was a possibility or that if they found it within themselves to volunteer, but that they would be expected that it would be a requirement and that that kind of broke through something that broke the ice to a different way of being that served them much better, not just in the classroom, but going forward. And so I am a big proponent
1: of that method. What's interesting about this debate over the Socratic method, I think, is that it seems to me to be symptomatic of a broader discussion about how to deal with the persistence of perceived and often real injustices, right? So, you know, undoubtedly, there are power structures in a classroom, undoubtedly, there are power structures among the student body at Harvard Law School today. And you can sort of look at the status quo and something like the Socratic method and say, well, it must be this method that is somehow associated with it, or perhaps that's causing it for that's not even necessarily the claim. And so getting rid of it is the solution. When actually, you know, in this case, at least, I think you make a quite compelling case that the Socratic method helps to bring in students who might otherwise remain silent, helps to empower students who perhaps... Having been culturally encouraged to speak out, helps to maintain a classroom with there's some hierarchy, but less hierarchy than in one, as I've experienced, for example, studying in some other countries, including in France, where the professor speaks and the students are best supposed to ask sort of sarcophantic questions that invite the professor to expand even more on the great wisdom. And so I guess the question is, how do we gather seriously with things like those inequalities of power and so on in a classroom setting? but in a way that actually builds on the helpful innovations of the past and the helpful traditions that places like Harvard Law School have, rather than throwing the baby out of the bathwater.
0: I think the problem was that in past decades, in past generations, where the Socratic method was used in law schools, it sometimes was used in a way that was quite abusive. That if you are the teacher with the power to be able to set the agenda and set the questions and you call on each individual... There is, of course, enormous potential for both good and bad that the teacher can exercise upon the student. And I think that there were certainly many instances, including instances that were specifically targeted at women, when they started to be admitted to law schools, that you would use the Socratic method to target certain people and to humiliate them. And The thing is, Socratic method is one tool that can be used for a great pedagogical purpose, but also for humiliation. But all kinds of things can be done in the classroom that can be humiliating, and those should obviously be avoided no matter what method you're using. At Harvard Law School, first of all, it was humiliating to female students that they would not be included in the Socratic method. That sometime when female students became more likely to be admitted, I guess some teachers were not that keen on female students being equal participants so that they just simply wouldn't call on females they would just call on the men and then notoriously there was at least one teacher at Harvard law school who would call on women only on what was called ladies day where women would be called on for you know maybe questions about something that people associated with women like rape for example and so those kinds of practices are extremely humiliating and marginalizing and i think that that history is sometimes cited, but to me, the lesson is you should use the Socratic method to equalize rather than to marginalize. And it should be used to bring out voices that otherwise would not feel as comfortable speaking in class, even if it might be nerve-wracking at first to start doing it. And I also think that right now, during this era specifically, we have a lot of reports and I have a lot of reports from my own students who basically say like, this is right now an environment in which I do not feel comfortable speaking or saying anything that might be remotely controversial, or even like, you know, volunteering to say anything in any discussion about any subject that could be potentially touch on something controversial. And so I think during this time, also the Socratic method comes into a specific role that could be very beneficial in that sometimes it's the only way to get a discussion going that the teacher calls on students to talk about certain issues.
1: Have you felt a change during your time teaching in law school in terms of how ready students are to volunteer their opinions on sensitive issues, sort of the extent to which they're fearful that a verbal misstep or perceived verbal misstep may get them into trouble with their classmates or skew the incentives in such a way that it's better to just shut up and bite your tongue than to make a point in class?
0: I would say unquestionably, that is the case. I began teaching in 2007. And so in the you know, 14, 15 years that I've been at it, yeah, there's been an enormous change in the willingness of students. I'm not talking about conservative students who have, I think, always felt slightly like they are in the minority. And so that comes with certain risks. But I'm talking about really liberal students, liberal Democrats who fear that their classmates may essentially turn on them if they express viewpoints that might be liberal but also maybe not conforming enough to a certain kind of sensibility or ideology. And, you know, I hear this behind closed doors all the time that students don't feel that right now that this is the kind of environment where that can happen, that that kind of discussion can happen. I do think that it's something that many teachers understand very well that this is happening, but it's also now an environment where even saying that is risky, Even to say, oh, yes, there's been a chilling effect, even that is considered edgy or controversial or the kind of thing you would be scared to say. And so it's often said, like, sotto voce and behind closed doors. So I think it's unquestionable that the chill has occurred. It is continuing. And we have to see the ways we can deal with it. As educators, I think it's one of our very important goals to get ourselves out of this position where we're dealing with classrooms where people aren't saying the things that would lead to exploration and learning. And I'm not talking about the right to say things that are racially or sexually discriminatory, right? That is not what we're talking about. These students aren't saying, oh, I really want to say something that's discriminatory. That's not what this is. There is such a thing as discriminatory speech. There is such a thing as harassing speech. Those are things that fall outside of what is considered acceptable on a university campus. But really, I'm talking about the realm of academic freedom that doesn't go into discriminatory or harassing conduct, basically an area that should be full of free exploration.
1: That does sound very worrying to me that at the top law schools in the country, the people who are going to be lawyers and the people who are going to be judges and in many other important positions in society have learned that the admissions ticket to being a part of the American elite is not to say what they believe, not to speak up in class. What do you think the roots of that are and what can educators, but what can people beyond that do about that?
0: I will say that just in the Defense of the institution I teach at, that I actually think Harvard Law School is one of the best places for academic freedom at the moment. As you know, I'm engaged often in representation of academics and students who are being investigated or disciplined for misconduct of this kind or accused. And what I see is that schools are very scared themselves, there's a climate of fear. And when that fear sets in, the institutional response often can be to say, oh, let's put this person on probation or let's suspend them while we investigate. That in itself is, you know, while technically not being punishment, it is, of course, a kind of measure that will have a chilling effect on speech and exploration. And I think that in terms of students, when they Come into law school, they're already acculturated. It's not that the law schools are creating this kind of culture. In fact, they're probably, if anything, doing a lot to counteract it. And that's something I associate with my school, Harvard Law School, that what we are trying to do is to instill in students that spirit of openness and being open to other perspectives and teaching how to disagree in a way that is civil, that really should be a component of how people act in a democracy, which is to respect other people's viewpoints, while also understanding that discrimination and harassment are not acceptable.
1: You've thought a lot about sort of both the importance of due process and the way that it's being undermined at the moment in some educational institutions, but perhaps also in society at large. It, It seems to me that there's a common theme there, with our discussion of a Socratic method, which is that, you know, legitimate criticisms of the way in which perhaps due process has sometimes historically played out or the way in which some people have benefited more from it than other people who weren't afforded the same due process rights, then leads to a rejection of the idea of due process rather than to a commitment to ensuring that we build a society in which everybody gets the benefit of due process. Tell us about the role that due process should play in institutions and in society at large and the way in which that may be being undermined in certain parts at the moment.
0: Well, the due process idea as a constitutional concept, which I think a lot of people associate due process with the U.S. Constitution and actions against individuals undertaken by states, and then you would have the ability to say to the government, I am entitled to due process before you take away something of value, such as my life or my liberty or my property. So that is the big concept of due process that we have in our country. And that, of course, came about in a robust way. The constitutional doctrine came about with the Supreme Court during the Warren Court years, understanding that due process was essentially a way to try to protect people of color, African-Americans from being exploited and oppressed by governments, by states who would be inclined to be unfair to such people, especially in the criminal context and when there was a criminal defendant. And so that was the way in which the Supreme Court kind of put a thumb on the scale against racial discrimination by saying, you know, you need to give due process. And this is what due process consists of. And so now we're in a situation where we have institutions like schools and workplaces, and we have developed over the decades, more robust idea of what discrimination is and what the responsibilities of institutions are to protect their people, you know, whether it's students or employees from discrimination and harassment. And so what do you do when you have an allegation? You have to allow that allegation to be made and then also to be investigated and adjudicated so that you could decide in a fair way whether the person who's accused ought to have something bad happen to them, like having some negative job consequence or expulsion or suspension or that kind of thing. And so due process is is a way of saying that process that has to happen has to be fair, basically fair. That's really what it means at the heart of it. And Right now, the relationship between this and what we were talking about earlier is that a climate of fear in which it is hard for people to speak their minds also affects the ways in which institutions think the easiest thing to do is to essentially punish or get rid of the person who's been accused. It may be that that person deserves it. It may be the person doesn't deserve it. But the only thing that stands between just arbitrary exercises of institutional power against such individuals, you know, just like, oh, it's in the institution's interest to just simply get rid of the person or to punish them or to say, denounce them in some way, that that's the only thing that stands between that and fairness is due process. It's just got to be a fair process. And so that's what I feel that I have been fighting for. In the last several years, both in my scholarly writing and also in my efforts in the representation of various plaintiffs, both internal to the university and also in other kinds of institutions. And it's extremely important to understand that some people associate due process now with the defense of people who've done bad things, like, for example, sexual assault on campus. It's now become kind of this trope that you have people who are accusing people of sexual assault, and then the other side says, due process. I need due process. So that's why I think that somehow due process among some communities has come to be associated with this sort of impunity for sexual assault. And that is, in my mind, very wrongheaded. Due process is something that protects everyone, including victims and people who are alleging wrongdoing. For example, in a case that I'm litigating right now, I'm representing Jane Roe, who is alleging that the federal judiciary as an institution did not afford her due process after she was sexually harassed and then tried to report it and get the claim investigated, that she was subjected to an unfair process. And so many of the same things That you would raise on behalf of a person who was, say, kicked out of an institution for wrongdoing, like the elements of due process. And here in this case, it's like a very basic one, which is that the person who you're accusing should not be making decisions in the investigation. That's one of the most basic principles of due process. This obviously affects not just people who are accused, but also people who are raising claims of discrimination and harassment that they ought to be treated in a way that is basically fair. And so I just can't stress enough how important it is to understand that.
1: In the context of free speech, uh, I've said in this podcast before that there just seems to me to be this sort of odd disconnect between the claims of people, especially on the sort of a progressive side of politics, that the people who are powerful in society Are bigoted and racist, that America is sort of essentially defined by white supremacy. And then the invitation for whether it be Silicon Valley companies like Facebook or Twitter, whether it be university administrators, or whether it sometimes perhaps even be political instances to have more power to restrict speech. Where I always say, well, you know, if that's your vision of who has power in the country, then why would you trust those institutions to determine what is within the boundaries of? legitimate speaks, and what is outside it. And it strikes me that the argument you're making about due process is sort of parallel in a different context, right? Where often the argument seems to be, well, look, due process is just a way for the powerful to be shielded from accountability. But of course, if there is no due process, and if you think that often the people who are powerful are not the good guys, then that is all the more reason to grant people due process in order precisely to give people tools to defend themselves against abuses of power.
0: Yes, to defend themselves or even to call out abuses of power and to say that something has happened that is just plain wrong and you should get a fair hearing when you say something like that. So it really does run both ways. And I think that the parallel to free speech is quite right. For example, right now, it is governments. It is state governments and local governments who are going out there and trying to ban critical race theory and the study of race in a certain way with a certain perspective and that is an exercise of power by government to try to restrict people's speech regardless of whether you like critical race theory or don't like it you know the fact that academics and teachers are being told that they can't teach that particular approach that's an example of free speech being restricted. And I think that some of those laws also violate due process in the sense that they're very vague in that you can't really know exactly how you're going to run afoul of it because what does critical race theory even stand for? Certainly they don't mean critical race theory as envisioned by the people who pioneered the form of scholarship and theory using that title. It's now come to mean something else altogether. So it really does run both ways. And sometimes the people who have power want to suppress a way of thinking that is left-wing, and sometimes they want to suppress right-wing ideologies or approaches. And either way, we should stand firm and say, the government doesn't get to say what kind of viewpoint you're going to express.
1: It's interesting to think about these liberal laws banning critical race theory as a problem of due process. It's not an angle from which I've looked at them, but that seems very convincing to me that a lot of the problem is that it's actually unclear what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do in the classroom and that... Many teachers who reasonably go about doing something that not only should be legal, but they believe to be legal, may then suddenly find themselves in the crosshairs of an investigation or something like that.
0: Yeah. And if you say something like it's illegal to teach about critical race theory, what are you going to do? You might be the kind of person who feels like taking it on and really carving out the thing that you think is critical race theory, not teaching it. But you might also be a person who just says, ah, not going to even bother to teach about race at all. And that is something that I'm very concerned about, especially with the environment that we're in, even in the absence of laws banning things, we have people self-censoring, we have teachers self-censoring and teachers saying, I used to teach this topic, which is about race or sex or about feminism or about, you know, racism or whatever. And now I just don't feel like doing it anymore because it just opens me up to risk, risk of being accused either institutionally or just informally. Accused, And that's the chilling effect. So even if you are not actually going to be arrested or brought up on charges or disciplined, it will have a enormous chilling effect to be able to to say something like these kinds of topics are going to get you in trouble. I can't tell you the number of academics who've told me because of what they perceive that Title IX administrators will consider to be
1: discriminatory,
0: that they are avoiding wholesale certain areas
1: of teaching. What does that mean, including for an international audience that may not know what Title IX is, and how does this regulation have a chilling effect on what faculty members might feel comfortable teaching in the classroom?
0: Yeah, Title IX is a law that is completely sensible in the sense that it says, as an educational institution, if you discriminate on the basis of sex then you don't get to receive federal funding. That's what Title IX says. And then, of course, there are all kinds of government regulations that are based on Title IX, where the executive branch enacts certain rules that are interpreting those words. And there's a lot of debate, of course, about those regulations and whether they are warranted, whether they actually reflect what Title IX meant to get at. And that's the political debate that's been going on for decades and probably won't stop. And then the way that it shows up on campuses is that then there's a whole bureaucracy of administrators who are charged with enforcing Title IX regulations on campus so that you'd have things like a Title IX office or a Title IX coordinator who then implements those regulations in the form of campus rules and norms. And then people can be disciplined so for example, to take very clear example, if you commit a sexual assault on campus or against a student, for example, then that would be a violation of campus rules, which are created in the service of Title IX regulations. So it's like multiple layers of regulations upon regulations. And if you do something that discriminates on the basis of sex, like let's say you excluded female students from your class or excluded male students from your class, that would be a clear violation of gender discrimination norms. And that would also be a Title IX matter. But, you know, in the past 10 years, we've had a situation where that interpretation of what is discrimination on the basis of sex has become much more broad So, people have been accused of violating Title IX for utterances that they might make in the classroom that somebody would say, Well, I feel like that utterance was unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. Right. Obviously, if you say to a student in a class, If you don't have sex with me, you won't get an A, that's sexual harassment. Right. But there are lots of things that can be said in the classroom about gender or about sex or sexuality that are not discriminatory. But then there could be debate about whether it was offensive. And so because of the norm of having Title IX being enforced on campus in a way that is developing to be much broader than what it was, you know, you've got this uncertainty. And so that uncertainty somehow sometimes creates a chilling effect on teachers. You know, just like, why do I need the trouble of even like parsing what I can do or not do? I can just sort of completely lop off the whole area of risk.
1: And what does that mean concretely? Does that mean avoiding teaching certain areas of the law? Does that mean avoiding making certain arguments? Does that mean avoiding publishing certain articles? What does that mean concretely?
0: I mean, just from my own anecdotal experience of hearing from teachers what they're doing, you know, it means going through the case book and saying, I'm not going to teach this case about gender discrimination. I'm not going to teach this case about Rape. I am not going to teach this case about a racial incident. And this is a real story. A teacher told me that they used to teach a case about Abner Luima, who was a man in New York who was sexually abused using a police baton that he was penetrated. And that case was a torts case that was in the case book. And he just said, There's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to teach that case anymore. So I think that it involves like excising certain cases. It might even involve for some teachers saying, I'm not teaching the whole area of sexual assault because of the risks that it carries, that it could be that students are unhappy with the way that I teach it. And I don't want to be nervous the whole time about that. So I really do think that it is a serious situation when the whole feminist push with pedagogy was to try to get these topics included. In the curriculum, because previously they were excluded, thinking with people thinking they weren't important enough. And now we have a situation where we are at risk of having some of these topics go back out of the curriculum for other reasons, not because they're not important enough, but because they pose too much risk of upsetting people or having people think that the teacher has said something offensive. Or maybe a student could say something that is perceived as offensive and the teacher hasn't done something adequate to address the situation right then and there. I do think that part of the chilling effect is the disappearance potentially of certain topics that we really do need to have teaching on in a society that is increasingly divided along these lines and especially around these very controversial topics.
1: When I talk about the sort of broader area of you know rising a liberal atmosphere in parts of American society on some American campuses, one of the questions I legitimately often get is you know why does it matter so much? Why is it so important? And it strikes me that this is a really striking example that if important areas of a law are taught less, if students who are very likely to go on to be influential judges and lawyers, for example, no less about the law of sexual assault, that in a very obvious way is going to have negative consequences for the most vulnerable in society. I still have another question about due process, which is that the argument some people are making is, broadly speaking, look, when the state acts with all of its coercive power and authority, and it threatens somebody with jail time, it threatens somebody with deprivation of their liberty. Well, in those contexts, perhaps we do need sort of very robust forms of due process. But a lot of the controversies about Title IX and due process tend to be about whether a student is thrown out of college or of law school or of business school or whatever it may be, perhaps whether an employee or a professor is fired. And, you know, those areas are just much less important. It's not like you're being sent to jail. And so perhaps we should tolerate a restriction of due process in order to right some of the injustices of the past. That's one very prominent commentator who's made that case explicitly, who essentially has said, you know what, perhaps it's time for some innocent people to suffer. If that advances the broader cause of accountability, of gender equality, so be it. And it's not like we're sending them to jail, right? That's not what we're talking about in this specific context. What do you say in response to that line of argument?
0: So there are two main things that have to be born in mind. One is that due process is not kind of this on-off switch, like you have due process or you don't have due process. The whole concept is that it's a continuum depending on the gravity of the loss that is being threatened. So obviously if the loss is your life, for example, in the death penalty type of context, that you would be entitled to the most robust kinds of process to make sure that this is going to be giving you every opportunity to make arguments against it. And then if it's jail or prison, that's also another very serious loss of liberty. And again, due process is very robust. Now, when it comes to other kinds of loss, like for example, expulsion or firing, it is not the same kind of due process, but there is still a concept that some process is due. And so what process is due is the question. And so of course, some people might say, well, no process is due because it's not jail. But that doesn't make sense to me. It's that what is appropriate to that amount of loss is the process that is due. And so we can have arguments about whether, say, and this is a very controversial area, like cross-examination, right? Obviously, in a criminal context, you are entitled to cross-examine the witnesses who are going to testify against you. You know, your lawyer will cross-examine such witnesses. In the campus sexual harassment context, are you entitled to cross-examine the other party? You know, whether you are the complainant or the respondent, are you entitled to engage in that kind of interaction? Some people think that this is essential. And in fact, the Trump administration wrote that into its Title IX rule that it released in 2020. Many, many, many people disagree with that and do not think cross-examination, sort of courtroom style cross-examination is necessary To constitute due process, I happen to agree with the people who don't think that kind of cross examination is necessary, but I believe that due process can be accomplished by some other means. For example, allowing one party to put questions to the other side in a written form that would be handled by the decision maker. So there should be some opportunity. So you see, due process is flexible depending on the kind of loss that you're talking about. So that's one thing that I would say. The other thing is that the whole idea that even if some innocent people have to be harmed, this is going to serve the broader interest of getting broader justice for a cause that previously has been neglected. I just don't accept that framing, partly because of what I was saying earlier, which is that if you erode process and the fairness of process, it affects people on one side sure but it will affect people on the other side as well so the erosion of fair process means that you know if someone's not entitled for example to have a decision maker who is impartial today it may affect the respondent but tomorrow it may affect the complainant and so the idea that somehow you know the victims or complainants are going to be uniformly helped by the erosion of due process is just wrong headed. And in the case that I'm litigating right now, we see exactly that: that the erosion of due process has affected the complainant who is a victim of sexual harassment because she didn't get the kind of fair procedures that she was entitled to in order to you know, pursue her claims.
1: This reminds me of a liner who was charged by another Harvard professor who sadly passed away a number of decades ago, Judith Kla. Who said, as people say, it takes eggs to make an omelet, but you can break a whole lot of eggs without ever making the omelette. And this seems to be, you know, potentially a case of that. By and large, do you think universities are getting this right in terms of their Title IX proceedings? And you know, how could we improve both on empirical reality on the ground, which I'm sure sort of varies hugely, and on the guidance that, as I understand it, keeps changing. So the Obama White House, and you know this better than me, so please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, the Obama White House had sort of updated guidance on how to implement Title IX, and then the Trump White House sort of changed it and altered it, and now it looks like the Biden White House is going to more or less reinstate something like what the Obama White House had passed. So both in terms of what the federal guidelines should be and in terms of what actually is happening on campuses, how do you assess the current state of affairs?
0: Yes, it's become quite a complicated landscape because we have, of course, the changing of administrations, like three administrations that have been now really focused on this, the Department of Education of Obama, Trump and Biden. It's very clear that they were very engaged with this. And we're going to have some changes probably under the Biden administration. But I don't actually believe that they're just simply going to undo everything the Trump administration did and go right back to the status quo ante, defined as what the Obama administration did. I don't think that that's going to happen just because once you have regulations in place, this is now law and it takes a lot to undo it. And they may undo parts of it, but it would be very surprising to me if they just wholesale decided to repeal every single thing. That the trump administration did because there were some things in there that were quite sensible so i think that their politics and rhetoric is one thing but the reality of like governing is another and so you know we're going to see some response that reflects the politics of this administration but i don't think that it's going to be like a wholesale absolutely everything the
1: trump administration did is gone To make this a little bit more concrete, what changes that the Trump administration put in place in this particular area of the law do you think were salutary? And what changes do you think the Biden administration should make to it? Because parts of it, I assume, were not salutary.
0: So, for example, in the Trump administration regulations, I think there's a lot of moves to say that both the respondent and the complainant should have equal access to the resources, and to the processes. And I think that respondents and complainants should be treated equally. I think a lot of those moves, I mean, they're just not that objectionable. I think that there are some things that are not going to be kept. I'm sure the cross-examination, that's the first thing that's going to be on the chopping block. But I would be surprised if there weren't some kind of statement from the Biden administration about the permissibility of having some form of questioning from one side to the other side, even if it's not in the form of cross-examination. So it's really that some of the basic ideas about fairness, those will probably be kept on, but the details of how it's accomplished and what the interpretation of fairness is, that may be changed. But I generally think that the rhetoric around these rules, you know, that these people said about the Trump rules, that this bring us back to the battle days when people could rape with impunity. I mean, I look at the rules and I just think, really, there's a gap between what the regulations say and what the rhetoric around it has been. And surely we're going to see the same thing when the Biden administration creates its rules that people are going to say, oh, we're now back to a moment where you know victims matter or where people will be held accountable. But again, if you look at the details of the rules, there will be a gap between that rhetoric and what the reality is. So that's what I think.
1: You know, I've always thought about going to law school and never ended up doing it. So I'm enjoying this private lesson in the law. So I'm going to ask you about one more area that you've written about recently, but I think is really interesting, which is the law about abortion that was passed in Texas, and not only with respect to the legality of abortion itself, but the way in which it effectively deputized citizens to be enforcers of that law. And you had a very interesting article saying that this is a basic legal tactic that liberals or progressives could take up as well as conservatives in principle and that there's something very worrying about the prospect of deputizing citizens in this kind of way to make an end run around the legal process. So I guess explain what the nature of this law was that seemed sort of novel or special in that kind of way what the danger of this deputizing consists in and what the legal trajectory of those kinds of attempts now looks to be.
0: Yes. So the Texas SB8 law, as many people know already, it's a very clear deviation from what the Supreme Court has said is supposed to happen, which is that it bans abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy, leaving the person only You know, six weeks from the date of the last period to be able to learn that they're pregnant and then get an abortion. So, if you miss out on the six weeks, then abortion is not available, not allowed. So, the abortion providers would be prevented from performing abortions. So, that in itself is not novel, except, I mean, of course, this is a very, very clear violation of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But the idea of banning abortion after a certain amount of time, that's not novel. What was novel was, that instead of having enforcement be put in the hands of the state or state official, the law specifically said no state official shall enforce the law. And in fact, the only way to enforce it is for a private citizen from Texas or elsewhere to sue an abortion provider, alleging that the provider provided an illegal abortion. And then that private citizen, if they prevail, would get $10,000 in damages that that would be their incentive to bring the suit. They knew that if they prevailed that they would get the $10,000 for each abortion that was done by the abortion provider. So like there's no limit on how many times the abortion provider could be sued if they provided these abortions. So the reason this is remarkable is because the purposeful effect, the intended effect was to make it impossible to sue the state in advance before enforcement of this law, Because essentially you usually sue the state to say, hey, this law is unconstitutional and you're suing the state official who is charged with enforcing the law. And then that can lead to an injunction and to preventing the law from going into effect. Well, in this case, there was no state official that was charged with enforcing the law. So therefore no state official that can be sued of course, you can still challenge the law. If, say, an abortion provider was sued by some private citizen, they could raise as a defense that the law is unconstitutional. But that would not be a pre-enforcement challenge. That would be after they were sued. They could do that, which would take you know months, maybe a year. But it was not possible. Under this law, or it was designed to not make it possible for the law to be challenged in advance. And therefore, the law would just go into effect, and all these abortion providers would just go, I don't want to get sued. I can't afford to get sued for $10,000 repeatedly. So therefore, I'm not going to perform these abortions. And that is the effect that it essentially has had for the most part in Texas, where abortion providers are chilled from engaging in activity that is now deemed illegal in Texas. And so this is a method that hasn't been, to my knowledge and to you know, most lawyers' knowledge, there hasn't been instances of use of this technique before, but it very easily could be used if it is considered to be okay. It could be used, let's say, in a blue state that wants to crack down on gun possession. What stands in the way of certain gun laws that they might pass is the Second Amendment and the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Second Amendment. So basically, if you pass a law that will ban certain gun possession rights, then similarly, you could say, the only way to enforce this is a private individual suing for $10,000. And then you would have a situation where it could not be challenged in court in a pre-enforcement challenge. So this all sounds really kind of like internecine and complicated, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the circumvention of the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution by states to be able to pass laws that clearly violate what the Supreme Court has said is permissible, and then shutting out a way of getting it reviewed in the federal courts in order to be able to just freely engage in this conduct that the Supreme Court would say is unconstitutional.
1: And so what's the likely legal trajectory of these kinds of laws? I guess there's two questions here, right? One is whether the Supreme Court will deem those kinds of laws unconstitutional. And I imagine that, by and large, that is going to be the case. But perhaps I'm being naive. But then the second question is, given the delay between when a law like that passes and when the Supreme Court has reason to believe that somebody has standing to appeal against it, Uh, a legislature, I imagine, could just pass an endless series of lightly reformulated laws that have the same effect and thereby keep sort of having this chilling effect for a year at a time or 18 months at a time or perhaps sometimes six months at a time. So what do you think is the likely future of that kind of legal strategy? Will it peter out because the Supreme Court will put a hold to it? Or is it going to spread in this way?
0: The sort of scenario that you just sketched out is exactly what the Supreme Court must be considering right now, that they don't want that to happen. And so I think that, you know, judging by oral argument in early November that took place on the SBA situation, the question there was, you know, can this structure, the way that SBA is structured, can it prevent the abortion providers from suing in court to say that this is an unconstitutional law? And I suspect and, and I believe that the Supreme Court will say yes The abortion providers can sue, even though the law is written the way it is. And so that will signal to everyone and and all the states that if they want to try this again, it's not actually going to work in the way that SB 8 was intended, right? To basically prevent judicial review of this
1: constitutional issue.
0: So if the Supreme Court makes that clear, then we won't have the kind of nightmarish scenario that you outline.
1: Let me ask you a final question, which is that it seems to me in my sort of social and political circles, there's a lot of deep skepticism about the legal system and the judiciary today. You know, part of that is just the fact of uh, being a clear conservative majority on the Supreme Court and they're likely continuing to be a clear conservative majority in the Supreme Court for a number of years. Uh, but part of it is also a sort of deep skepticism about the views of the average American, such that people often end up, you know, being highly critical of juries, even in advance of verdicts, that people often have a sense that if somebody is being judged by a jury of their peers, given that the average American is deeply bigoted or racist or sexist, that is not likely to result in a fair trial. And so I guess I would like to get your view on whether you think those pessimistic views are warranted or whether we should continue to have faith that the judicial system, whether it's questions like the Supreme Court ruling on the constitutionality of SBA, or whether it is juries around the country considering the guilt or innocence of the accused, are going to do, by and large, a decent job.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really rich question. The thing about SBA... That I think really kind of captures the zeitgeist is that it is precisely about a challenge to the federal judiciary. That law is written to say almost like, you know, the Supreme Court may have its view about what the Constitution means, but Texas has its own view about what it means, and we're going to pass a law that implements our view. And so it's essentially challenging the centrality or the authority of the Supreme Court and its ability to give an authoritative interpretation of the Constitution. And I think it reflects this zeitgeist that you're talking about, which is like a skepticism about the ability of these institutions, whether they're elite institutions like the federal courts or even institutions that were considered anti-elite like juries, right? Because the idea of a jury of one's peers is that they're not just sort of like appointees or you know elected officials. These are like ordinary people who are supposed to be able to judge ordinary things, And so the spirit right now that's moving through the country in some ways is about challenging or being really cynical or skeptical about all of these decision-making bodies to make correct decisions. So I think this really goes to the heart of what the Supreme Court abortion case that we're about to hear on Wednesday is also about. Like, is it really the Supreme Court that gets to decide or should it be the Democratic majorities in all the states gets to decide whether abortion should be legal and in what way. And as for juries, the idea of 12 people selected making a decision, I think that it is true that people are very concerned that juries themselves may have the biases and the discriminatory impulses that many people are really keenly aware of and challenging today. But at the same time, we do see that juries have a kind of common sense about what is true and what is just. And the problem is, like, who's common sense? Who is the holder of the common sense? And I think that that's kind of built into what the jury system is supposed to be about. And I think that until we get a handle on the divisions in this country over these kinds of issues, this debate will just continue. And in some ways, it'll continue Regardless of what happens in this country, because that's sort of the tension that's built into our system that we have on the one hand, like institutions that are supposed to reflect what the people want, like these democratic institutions. But on the other hand, it's a system that has a constitution that's supposed to also be a counterbalance of what it is people would vote for to the extent that what they would be voting for would be against the basic foundational ideas reflected in the constitution. But basically, I don't know that I have a great answer to your question, but I do think that it just reflects the ongoing debates and the tensions that we've had since the beginning of the country about decision-making. It's essentially a question of power and who gets to wield power and the pushback to that power. I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing that we're having a moment of revision where we look at our institutions with skepticism.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally